Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 98 of Control the Controllables. Today's guest is going to tell us all about hitting partner for top pro tennis players maybe isn't the glamour that everyone makes out. I would hit with Sabine Lezicki, Sharapova, Heather Watson in one day. And by the third practice, I would be dead. Yeah. I would be dead. I remember one time I was serving to Laura Robson and she wanted to hit uh, returns. And this is like my fifth or sixth hour on the court. And this is in the summer of Florida. I'm dying. I'm like sweating out of my eyes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm doing serves. And after about like the 50th serve, I threw the ball toss up and I completely blacked out the practice ended and I was so relieved I just went and sat in my car for like an hour with the AC because I was just dying but that's kind of the reality of of being a a hitting partner and that is of course Tom Hill who is our guest today Tom as you will hear from his story an amazing story really into being one a hitting partner when he was about to stop and go into law school and then which then saw him two years later as the coach and the current coach of Maria Sakari, who's 22 in the world WTA. Tom himself from the UK is only 25 years old. He's already been the coach of Danielle Collins, taking her from 250 in the world into the top 40 in the world after graduating from Pepperdine University as a tennis player. Tom really speaks well. He he shares insights, but he does it in, in a very humble manner. He knows he's got a lot to learn. And I've often asked myself the question, why are these young tennis coaches working with some of the real best players in the world? Now that I've spoken to Tom, I really do understand why, and I'm sure you guys will as well. So sit back and enjoy another fantastic show. Over to Tom Hill. So Tom Hill, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? No, I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Thank you for having me on. It's a, it's an absolute pleasure, Tom, to have you on, and especially at such an exciting time as you're less than 24 hours away from getting out of your hotel room. How, how's the last couple of weeks been? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's honestly, it hasn't been that bad at all, if I'm completely honest. It's been kind of, I say, frustrating uh, being able to see uh, other players practice, but at the same time, I respect the rules. We are close contacts, so... Really, it's just been about just kind of being positive and, and getting through it and accepting it. So it's honestly, it's been, Tennis Australia has looked after us very well. So I will say thank you to them. So you have a view of the courts from your room, do you? I, I, I literally can see the courts right right there. It's I'd say it's maybe 400 metres away. 
Wow. So you so you'll be on those courts tomorrow. What's the what's the protocol from now? You know, like, when are you allowed out? Uh, so all we've been told at the moment is we're allowed out tomorrow. Uh, we don't know what time. Uh, we don't know anything. All we know is that um, all the players that are in hard quarantine that haven't been able to practice get priority on courts, uh, which helps because I think tomorrow is going to rain. So um, oh, really? I don't know how tomorrow is going to go, but I just I'll have all my stuff packed, ready, waiting at the door. When they knock on the door, I'm out. Yeah. Well, Tom, I, I know it's been a massive news story, everything happening in Australia. And I know that you guys have been in quarantine for 14 days. It's great to get that insight. But I guess today for me is more about, about you and about us really getting in to dig a little bit deeper to who Tom Hill is. You know, a 25-year-old coach working with one of the best players in the world currently and also a British coach. You know, it's very much listened to by the world of British tennis. And I think people are really fascinated to get to know you a little bit better. So a question I ask all of the guests actually is, when did that tennis bug start for you? You know, how old were you and where, where did that begin? Yeah, I, I, I remember the first time I, I held a tennis racket, I think I was four years old. Uh, so I don't know how normal that is. Maybe that's on the young side. I'm not sure. Uh, but I was also playing many other sports. I preferred football, if I'm honest, when I was younger. Yep. Um, but I would play cricket with school, rugby. I played just a bit of everything. And just as the years kind of went on, I started to kind of, I preferred more of the individual sports than the team sports. And I just found myself being drawn to tennis more and more. Um, and it was kind of, by around nine or 10, I kind of said to my parents that, you know, I want to, I want to play tennis, but I was having problems with school. School were not allowing me to uh, take time out. And you probably know, but that's when I made the decision to go to IMG Academy in Florida when I was 10 years old. So you moved to America with or without your parents at that age? With, with. Okay, I was going to say that's very that was very young to go without. So, <laughs> so you've obviously got incredibly supportive parents or ambitious parents. What was it that that, that drove uh, them to do that? Supportive. They've uh, sacrificed so much for me, and it was never out of. Um, I was never forced. I was never pushed. That they, they truly were like the best tennis parents you could have, like, and for me, yeah. parents in general, because I never felt pressure, I never felt expectations. They they just supported me and were able to financially, you know, take that sacrifice, and yeah. I appreciate it. And do you think you were ready at that age to really know what you wanted to do to make such a commitment to move to to America? Uh, it's a tough question. I when I was maybe about eight or nine, uh, the coach that I was working with at the time would take uh, all of his students to uh, IMG Academy in Florida yeah. just for a week or two. And I, I believe when I was there was when I kind of fell in love with the place and when I, I, I was kind of pressuring my parents, like, I really need to go to this place if I want to improve my tennis. But if I'm, if I'm completely honest, I would, I would not be where I am today if I had not have gone to IMG Academy when I was 10 years old. Yeah. Um, when I was when I was kind of 10 years old and I know it really looking back means absolutely nothing how good yeah. you are at 10 years old but I was I was quite far behind all the top players of my year group which yeah. it's like I think at the time was like uh, Bambridge, Brody, uh, Kyle Edmund they were the top ones and I went away for a couple of years came back and then 
I was a lot closer to their level. So for me, I, I believe it was it was a really good move. And how was that experience to be uh, at that age, I guess, were, were you playing four hours a day, five hours a day? Were you jumping into the whole academy world? Did you have individualized program or was it just being a part of the big factory that, that is such a big tennis academy? Um, at the beginning, I was just, just I guess, a, a number in the factory system. Back then it was, uh, you go to school in the morning, maybe like eight to 12 and then you would practice from one to four and then do fitness four to five. It was around kind of around those yeah. times. I started kind of like I a lot of coaches are trying because that's how the coaches can make money is from, you know, individual lessons. Okay. And so I had a lot of coaches kind of um, putting pressure on me to have lessons, but I didn't rush into any. And then I, I ended up with my family. We, we picked a coach. So I would then also do maybe two, three times a week also uh, individual lessons but that was also a, a really good step because that personal individual touch with a coach uh, really helped and how did you pick how did you pick your coach at that age it's tough because when we first went there we didn't know any of the coaches and you 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 are under pressure straight away with coaches saying oh I can really help you or you can change this with your forehand or you can do that with your serve so it's tough but I think uh, we spoke around uh, with a few other families that were there, who they used, and also just kind of the the energy that a that a coach that a coach gave. And I ended up uh, picking a Peruvian coach, and and no, he, I, I really enjoyed working with him. It's interesting, actually, Tom, because that that actually goes against how I would run a tennis academy, and. And, yeah. and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. I, I guess one of my big beliefs when I set up my academy 11 years ago is, is I wanted my coaches to be fully waged. I didn't, what I didn't want was any coach to be running their own business within the business because I wanted everyone to buy into the values, the cultures we were trying to set. I wanted it to be, okay, well, actually, you're the best coach for that player. I wanted it to be... Yeah. If we're going to have coach meetings, then, you know, we're going to have coach meetings. If we're, you know, this is expected, but we're going to do everything as a team. So that somewhat surprises me that that happens. I don't know if it happens anymore because naturally, like you've alluded to, it does bring this kind of almost who's the best speaker <laughs> who who can who can in a way yes you, you know and that that's that's some of the bugs me about tennis coaching you know it's, it's it shouldn't be about who can give the best jargon and who can speak to the best the best way to the parents did you feel and I guess it's a bit of a reflective question that the coaches were working together towards one collective goal or did it feel a little bit like they were all kind of looking out for themselves that's a great question. Um, I do agree with your philosophy for your academy. I do think that's the right way. And I believe perhaps IMG probably does that now. Uh, I don't know how IMG runs anymore. But the positives of the way it was back then that I found was that although all the coaches were putting pressure on players to work with them, they were almost scouting the players that they wanted to coach and it became extremely competitive and there were tournaments every week and the coaches wanted their the players that they were coaching to win to kind of demonstrate how good they were and 
you did get inspiration from the coach because I never felt like the coaches that I was working with were just doing it for the money. I always felt like they were also trying to prove themselves. And I liked it. I, I, maybe it's not the best way. Maybe they don't do it anymore. Uh, yeah. But I do remember we had these tournaments called Grand Prix that were played maybe two times per month. And it was just IMG students and we'd play against each other. And, you know, you'd have uh, the coaches watching and you'd be playing against some other student that, you know, and his coach would be there and you'd be like, I've got to win for my coach. And the, it, it, I don't know, I, I enjoyed that sort of um, way, but I, I can also see how uh, it does become a little bit just this coach is trying to get 20 players just because he's trying to just look after yeah. himself. I can understand that. And that, yeah. and that probably did happen. I just was too naive to see yeah. it. Yeah, but even the way you've described it there, Tom, I, I do find that that sounds quite healthy in the way that there's accountability of the coaches to ultimately have to do a good job. And you've just in quite an almost blase way mentioned there that every weekend the coaches are watching the players. Whereas if we yeah. do, and it's not about comparing all the systems, but we've had a couple of podcasts where we've actually looked at the Spanish system compared to the British system. And one of my bugbears with the British system is it's very difficult for coaches to watch their players because if they're, if they're working on an hourly rate, why would they go off to Solihull Arden or why would they go off to wherever it would be around the country to watch a player when they could do eight hours of work, getting paid 30, 40 pound an hour, whatever it might be for, 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 for that hourly rate. Whereas, and that's one of the reasons that I like coaches to be waged, but it seems like, they've maybe got the best of both worlds because they, they've got their coaches doing the job, but they've still got that competitive spirit and that accountability. Yeah. I mean, when these coaches were also coming to watch um, us practice, they weren't kind of like on the hour, uh, making sure that we paid them for the hour. They came because they also wanted to help the player. And, and one thing that I do remember, and I, maybe this was a way how IMG motivated the coaches that every year we would have, I can't remember how many students there were, but there would be uh, the top group, which was the best players, and then it would go down in, obviously, in level. And it was never the same coach that coached the top group. And it was the coach who kind of demonstrated uh, over that year the improvements of certain players. He would then get that top group the following year. So I guess that was maybe a way they motivated coaches because all the coaches wanted to coach the top group. They didn't want to be coaching. I don't want to say this in a horrible way at all, but they wanted to be with players that are, yeah. uh, are either trying to go to college or trying to make it on the tour, as opposed to teaching someone how to hit a forehand when they're eight years old. Yeah, I think as aspiration is very motivational for for tennis coaches you know to be working with someone who has who has aspiration it, it brings me on and, and it's to academies and I think academies is quite a, an interesting topic and 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 I don't know if you ever felt this but did you ever feel the pressure of or oh, Tom Hill or oh, he's at IMG was it IMG or Boletaries when you were there it was Boletari, but same thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when, or Tom's there, 
and yeah, well, he's, he's, I mean, and he can't even make it past the second round of nationals or, or whatever it might be. What a waste of money. Did, did you yeah. ever, did you ever feel that when you, if you came back to the UK to play tournaments? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I didn't play too many British tournaments, but I, I remember playing um, a tournament in Bournemouth. I can't remember what it was. It was like under 12s. It wasn't the nationals or it may have been clay courts or something. I don't remember. Uh, and I remember played against Luke Bambridge when I was maybe 10 years old, right before I left. And I think I lost like love and love. I, maybe I won a game. And then I remember coming back two years later and I won a few rounds. I beat some, some good players. And I remember I played Luke Bambridge again. And I remember there was a few people kind of like, talking behind my back that I could hear about oh oh he's that one that's gone to IMG as an academy like oh let's see how good he is now or let's see if he can really play yes. or blah blah and and they, there was this this chatter I did lose uh, to Luke again but I believe it was like a really close two set or three set match but I'd kind of shown that over those two years that I had improved a lot and I did find that after that um, a lot of people were talking about, wow, how, how much has Tom improved? Look at him. Like he's gone to academy and he's playing so good now. So yeah. it works both ways. But yeah. uh, I don't know if it's jealousy or what it is, but you do feel a pressure from other parents, players, coaches that you have to perform because you're the one that's gone to this academy. Yeah, and I think it's almost it's almost like the media. It's like the England football team. If they're winning, then they're yeah. the best team in the world. But the second that they you know they lose or they're they're not playing so well, they they get jumped at, and it, it's quite a difficult position to be in. But I, I think the the one thing that's not talked about, but you did say it, and and it was one of the first things you said on this on this talk, was that you wouldn't be where you are now if it wasn't for that, and. I'm a massive believer in this, that tennis academies are not just about improving as a tennis player. Of course they are. And of course that is one major measure and it, and it absolutely has. And we, we have to be accountable as academies and as coaches, but it is also about providing those opportunities about quite a lot of intangible benefits, building your network, yeah. you know, opening your mind. I mean, which, which 20 and you've been working now at, at, a, at a very high level in the women's game for three, four years. So from early twenties, which player, which, people think that they belong, you know, to have the mind to feel like you can belong there, you know, would yeah. you, would you have picked that up if you'd stayed local, you know, would you have picked up some of the life skills that you clearly have, you know, you would, you, would you have had the opportunities that I can only imagine some of the numbers you've got on WhatsApp in your phone, you know, that, that, that you can, that opens up all sorts of doors, you know, and I think there's often such a negativity to that. I don't think we, we sell those benefits of tennis academies enough. And I guess yeah. you touched on it, but can you go into more detail on why you feel you wouldn't be where you are if it wasn't for that? I think there's, there's two, two kind of uh, reasons. The first reason would be uh, kind of like the story I just told about uh, the, the match where I went, went away, came two years later and improved. I think that kind of development I had from 10 to 14 was really important for my tennis just because I was behind where I needed to be. Or I don't know if you could say needed to be, but behind um, the other players that were that level. And then when I came away from IMG four years later, I'd caught up and I was I was not the best by all means, but I was I was in that elite group where the people, my year group, if you would say who are the best players in this year, you would put my name in a group of maybe 10 players. 
and yeah. um, that helped me massively also kind of the competitive competitiveness of an academy it also teaches you and I know not all academies are like this but at the time IMG it was kind of like a very cutthroat industry tennis like that's how tennis is really you have to um, you have to be tough you have to be resilient there's going to be people that are you know, bullying you or talking you know horrible things behind your back and it, it did make me tougher those those four years the second uh, reason why I think it helped me was kind of the networking like you've talked about when I came back and I'm, I'm moving too far ahead that when I did my hitting partner uh, with Sharapova it was actually at IMG so it was kind of like a whole kind of uh, I came back to where I was when I was 14 and when I was there I, I was bumping into players coaches uh, staff that I knew from when I was 14 and I believe that was also a, a big factor in why IMG kept me on to be a hitting partner was the relationship that I developed when I was a student with a lot of the people before 100% and and I would imagine also because you must have made a good impression. And I think I, I was listening to a podcast uh, the other day with Matthew McConaughey, the the actor. And it, it, I, I don't know yeah. if you've read his stuff, but he talks about this, this theory around green lights and how decisions that you make in any given time are actually buying yourself a green light further down your path whereas if you're making some kind of bad short-term decisions they're actually giving you red lights and then you're having to deal with the guilt or the the difficulties of 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 that decision and this is a big one for me for players by by actually having good attitudes by being a good person by being kind by you know being approachable working hard for for the coaches it might be 10 years later, it might be five years later, it might be 15 years later, that that's the person that's then going to give you the opportunity into, into the world, absolutely. you know, which it seems like you've absolutely done perfectly well. No, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And, and I believe it was the, the main factor and not the main, but one of the, the factors in why IMG kept me on. So I agree with that a hundred percent. So you mentioned 14. Did you leave IMG at 14, did you? Yeah, and this again, this is where I, I only have good things to say about IMG. When I was 14, I'd worked myself from the bottom group to the top group. And this is of the, the, the full-timers program. There was another group that was one more ahead, but that was the IMG signed athletes. And at the time, it was players like, I think Kane Shikori was 18. You had like Filip Krajinovic, Gastau Elias, a lot of like elite guys and I wasn't there. Um, I could never be in their group because they were older. They were just better. They were signed. But I remember a coach came up to me and he was very high up at IMG. And he told me, uh, I shouldn't be telling you this, but if you stay at IMG much longer, you're just going to end up being a number. You've developed, you've got yourself to a stage where now you need to go and compete. You need to go and play matches. You need to test yourself against the best people in the world. If you just stay here, you're going to be held back because there's nobody here that can really push you to the next level. And I won't name that person because he, I mean, I don't even know if he works there anymore, but he could have got fired for saying that. But, you know, we listened to his advice and I left IMG and I, I believe he was 100% right because it was at that stage when I started testing myself against other people because you can get trapped in academies yes. and you feel like you're a 
I guess it's the saying, what is it, like a big fish in a small pond? Yep. And you think you're something special, but you need to be humbled when you, you go outside yep. and you lose to someone two years younger than you. And yep. you're like, whoa, I need, I, need to, I need to improve. Yeah. So where did you go next? I actually just, just started competing. My mum is, is originally, she was born in Argentina. And I have relatives and, and family that live over there. So I moved to Argentina uh, and I just competed uh, against loads of South American players. And that that was tough because they show no mercy over there. Sure. These clay quarters are 14, just grinding. And I'm just like, oh, wow. And that was also amazing for me because I remember I, I played a, the first couple of tournaments and I, I just lost easily. And there was me. I was too cocky at the time. I was arrogant. I was, I was beating, I was on like some 26 match winning streak at IMG. And I was thinking that I was this amazing thing, but you go there and you lose first round, first round, first round in three tournaments. And you're like, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it, it also kind of motivated me to like, I'm actually, I need to improve a lot more. So I just stuck in and kept working. The courts are a lot smaller over there. I noticed when I went to play in South America as well. The fingers come out yeah. a little bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And if, even on clay, even on clay. <laughs> I've never, I mean, I remember I played like Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia. We played a final. It was actually against Juan Ignacio Chela. And he was okay. playing with another, it was doubles. And I, and I swear, we're in one fell swoop, he slid across the shore mark wiped the mark out that was on the line <laughs> and managed to create this almost perfect looking ball mark with the ball of his yeah. foot that somehow the umpire, <laughs> it, 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 like the skill level that they, they had to do it. But yeah, I mean, it's an incredible experience. Did you have a coach at that point? Did you have someone who was, who was leading the way for you or, or were you just on your own competing? No, I had a coach and I, he was, he was working with me. And, you know, he, he also really improved my game during these years because um, I, I felt like I was getting a lot more individualized attention. Yeah. Um, IMG became a lot of kind of match play. But like I said, once you get to a certain level, you do have to test yourself against other people. And yeah. then when I was working with this Argentine coach, I felt like I was starting to work on a few more individualized parts of my game and, and making them stronger and I think it, it was good timing for it so Tom it's it, it sounds like you've had so many positive experiences and I know you then went off to off to US college and I believe you played some professional tournaments yeah however ultimately you didn't make it up to have a have a high enough ranking as a player so I guess in in the brutal tennis world you failed as a tennis player yeah why? I think there's many reasons. Um, the first reason I would say is, you know, you always have to put yourself first. It, it was, I am to blame. I think um, mentally I was weak in moments and I would always deny this if you asked me a few years ago, but now that I look back, I think, yeah, there were times when I was weak and that doesn't just mean throwing tantrums. I don't mean that. I mean, um, there were times when I, I put too much pressure on myself to win a certain match that really meant nothing. Or if my coach would be working on a certain aggressive style of play, I would go and just my will to win made me just push. And the result mattered more to me than actually developing my game. 
So these are things that at the end of the day, that was my fault. You can have a coach tell you to go and play aggressive, but if, if you then go and, 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 you know, just push, you're not going to, to develop. I also believe perhaps um, my choice of where to go to college didn't help me just because the coaching there, uh, I didn't develop the way that I thought I would. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to college tennis. I think you should. I think everyone should at least consider college if unless they're some really special talent that's just going to jump right onto the tour. Uh, but you have to be so careful in college about the coach. Um, who is who is going to be coaching you? Who have they developed? Um, are you just going to be, in a way, a number in their team? Um, so I, I, it was college, and I'm not saying if I'd have gone to a different college, I would have made it. But I believe I could potentially be in a, in a better position. Tom, I've got so many questions in my head here. I'm, I'm, try, I'm, try, I'm trying to work out. I'm trying to work it out in my head which which route I'm gonna go. So I think I'm gonna go this route first. Now that you're now that you're working at such a high level in the women's game and almost tying that together with college, you talk about, you know, everyone should consider college. And I would agree with that. I think it should be an option for, for everybody. Do you think it's the same option for females as it is for males? Absolutely. Uh, I, I know there's this kind of idea in people's head that the women are more successful in pros when they're 16, 17, 18. But if you notice, it's actually getting a little bit older now. Uh, players are having success later on in their careers and women's game as, as well. And let's be honest, the, the biggest advantage the women have in college is that they're almost guaranteed a full scholarship. The men don't get that. It's yeah. like you could be an unbelievable player but on the men's side, but maybe you're only getting 80% scholarship. And the women are guaranteed to, to get you know, if you're a decent player, you're, you're guaranteed to get a full scholarship. So go for a year. If you don't like it, you can drop out and play pro. Yeah, but I guess, I guess even to tie that into your story, college is something that maybe stunted your growth, you know, and, and again, if I, if I talk about it, I, take, take Maria as an example, take Danielle, who I know you've, you've worked with as well would they fit in a college environment? You know, would they have developed as players in a team of eight, 10 girls? Maybe they're not getting on with half the team. Maybe the coach isn't giving them the individualized attention. Maybe from a physical point of view, they're doing a generic physical program. All of these things would be negatives potentially attached, you know, so. And your spot on. So, so. Could that could that not stunt the growth of quite a lot of not just female players but female players and male players? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, everything you said about just kind of generic fitness program and you know not even individualized attention. These are all big things in college, and you have to be so careful. And as for for the two players I've coached, Maria, I don't know how Maria would have done um, in college. Maria went a completely different route and. You know, Maria's very open about this in interviews, but she wasn't um, some amazing 16, 17-year-old, 18-year-old. Um, she developed later on, and, and she decided to take the route of, of playing futures and, and pushing herself against yeah. professional players, and she developed that way. 
However, Danielle, who I coached, did go to the college route. Right. She played at mm-hmm. University of Virginia. And she had, I believe, I believe she graduated. I think she had four years there. Yeah, she did. And so it, it's really tough to say uh, what's right, what's wrong. I just feel like although college is, is great, if you get the right coach and the right program, you are, it's, it, it is a risk. But then I, I don't want to sound like I'm contradicting myself because, for example, now in present times with the, the coronavirus, maybe it makes sense if you're a young player now to go to college because there's not really any tournaments going on that you can play. At least in college, you're going to get matches. So it's, it's tough. It's a tough one to say. It's, it's, but that's also why I guess you look at it. If you really ask yourself how many professionals come out of college, the numbers are small. Uh, yes, there are players, Cameron Norrie, Kevin Anderson, uh, Mackenzie McDonald, I'm sure I'm missing a few others. And on the women's game, you've got Danielle and then... Um, There's a much higher percentage Jennifer on the... Brady, people like that. Much higher percentage on the men's side. And a much higher yes. percentage in doubles than singles. That is true. That is true. I think what we're what we're saying, and I think we both agree, and this is, this is the challenge of, of the sport, it is so individualized. <laughs> it's, you know... Yeah, absolutely. What what works for one might not work for another, you know. The the also the the importance of getting those relationships right and those connections, you know, with your coaches, with your with your hitting partners, with the people that you're spending the most time with, which which takes me into how this next part of your journey, you're still a young pup, Tom, you're 25 years old and you've achieved more in your coaching career than all of us old farts put together. Uh, how, no, 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 no. how did that start? Because I believe it was a certain Maria Sharapova that opened that door. Uh, yes. So I was finishing my final exams at summer school at Pepperdine. And I was preparing myself for law school, actually. And I, <laughs> it sounds crazy, but I, I, when I was at college, I did go out, but I didn't go out like a, a normal student. I was, you know, I was taking my tennis serious and I, I wasn't, basically a party animal but when I finished my final uh, final year of eligibility for tennis I decided that I would for the for the final summer which was like two three months I was like I'm just going to go out all the time uh, so I remember I was at a bar in Santa Monica the bar was closing and then I bumped into an old teammate and he he was maybe three or four years older he was playing on the tour at the time he was maybe around two three hundred and he was asking me what my plans were. And I was like, OK, I think I'm going to go to law school. And he was like, OK, that's that's uh, that's cool. <laughs> He's like, um, have you ever considered being a hitting partner? And I was like, why do you ask that? Mate? Now, tennis is done to me. My rackets are in the wardrobe and they're not coming out. I'm not I'm not doing anything in tennis. And he, he says to me, well, here's a good way to make just a little bit of money uh, while you're still playing, while you're still playing at a good level. I have this agent, Max Eisenberg. He's asking me uh, to do some hitting for him, but I don't want to do hitting because I still want to compete. What about if I give him your number? And I was like, yeah, sure, sure. This is like 2 a.m. in a bar. Yeah, sure, sure, whatever. And I didn't hear anything for like three weeks. And I'm, I'm walking into my final exam and I'm so excited. I'm like, I, I know I've passed this class. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. And I, I receive a text from Max Eisenberg, who is Maria Sharapova's agent, asking me if I could come to Florida to hit with Maria and 
this is right before I'm walking into my final exam. So now, now I can't even remember anything I was just studying for the, <laughs> the past all nighter I just pulled. And um, I finished the exam. I texted him back and I was like, oh, I would love to. Uh, but then as soon as I agreed to do that, I suddenly panicked. And I was like, I haven't touched a racket for three months. I'm a little bit out of shape. <laughs> <laughs> I remember t- texting a friend and I was like, let's go practice I, I need to hit just give me half an hour I just need to feel the ball and yeah. um, luckily I, I, just, I still remembered how to play I went to Florida I hit with Sharapova and um, the whole reason why that hitting came up was she had a hitting partner at the time I believe her hitting partner had some family emergency so they needed somebody and it was it was a very short stint I knew it wasn't going to turn into full-time work but I couldn't turn down hitting with yeah uh, with Sharapova but then I guess the positive was she recommended myself to Max Max then recommended I stay at IMG IMG knew me from when I was there as a youngster and then it, then they had me as their IMG's sparring partner for all the WTA players so the moral of the story Tom is go out, is go out more is that <laughs> so, so this is you know he i've i've spent nearly 100 episodes trying to teach mindset and stick to your daily bill do these things all these habits and you've blown it all out of the water and you've told people go out have a few beers and opportunities yeah. will open <laughs> uh yeah maybe if uh, if you want to be a player don't do that for a coach maybe maybe <laughs> okay. and 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 i always think with the um the hitting partner thing it's not something i've ever i've ever done but i i have worked with a lot of coaches that have and i've had some of my coaches do it and i think people often think what a, what a great gig it is but i would imagine hitting with somebody like maria sharapova is got to be quite intimidating and 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 if you're not hitting it well and you're not putting the ball where you're supposed to put it you probably quite quickly get told Oh, it, I will say Maria Sharapova, she was fantastic. Um, I actually did hit very well with her. I found her ball was quite a, a nice ball to, to hit with because right, yeah. she was very consistent. She hit it flat or was always in the right strike zone. So for me, it was quite an easy, easy hit. But there are certainly players who I've hit with who I won't name, who if I have put a little bit too much spin on the ball or the ball is too far away from them or for whatever, they will let you know. So, yeah. The hitting was was a good experience, but I don't miss it. It's a lot of stress, a lot of work, and and yeah, I, I don't miss the hitting. But it, it but again, it was the only my it was my route into being a coach, and absolutely. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't have done it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And on that hitting partner, I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time on that. But are you valued? So I guess a little bit like within within the team. My my thing is. With hitting partners, it can be a little bit just, yeah, they come and go, you know, they come and go, whatever. Do you feel a value part of the team or do you feel a little bit like the the imposter who's just coming in to, to, to have to do that for a few days at a time or however it might be? Yeah, that's how you feel. You, d- you don't really feel a part of the team. Um, when I was doing the hitting, it was, I would I would just be told, be here at this time. I'd turn up at the court. I would literally 
I don't want to say this the wrong way, but I'd kind of be like a slave on the court. They'd be yeah, like, hit two I mean, cross, yeah. hit one line. And I'm just I'm just running. I'm expected to be this machine that doesn't miss a ball, that can yeah. run, you know, side to side for two hours. And that's tough. You know, yeah. it's not easy. And 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 the IMG, and I have nothing bad to say about it, but I was doing five, six hours a day of hitting. I would hit with Sabine Lizicki, Sharapova, Heather Watson in one day. And by the third practice, I would be dead. Yeah. I would be dead. I remember one time I was serving to Laura Robson and she wanted to hit uh, returns. And this is like my fifth or sixth hour on, on the court. And this is in the summer of Florida. The humidity, the heat, I'm dying. I'm like sweating out of my eyes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm doing serves. And after about like the 50th serve, I, I, I threw the ball toss up and I completely blacked out. And luckily, I, I don't think she she realized but there was some guy passing the court they had a conversation and then the practice ended and I was so relieved I just went and sat in my car for like an hour with the AC because I was just dying but that's kind of the reality of of being a, a hitting partner yeah and how did you manage to do that because a few minutes earlier you've talked about you've hung up your rackets you're done you're going, yeah. you're going yeah. to law school, I guess, you know, you've, you've touched on it that maybe you, your college experience wasn't the best. You've maybe lost a little bit of your passion for the sport. So how have you now got the passion reignited to go and sweat your eyeballs off to, to be hitting tennis balls with, with some probably quite angry women that are telling you that you're not hitting it deep enough or hard enough or flat enough? Yeah, I think at the beginning, Although maybe my love for the sport wasn't where it used to be, still, to me, the opportunity to hit with Sharapova, Heather Watson, Madison Keys, Sabine Lizicki, this is, this is like, it's cool. I was like, this is, this is a fun experience. Yeah. Maybe it's something I can, I can tell my friends uh, in, in, you know, down the road. The first couple of times, it was fun and, and nerves were high and I was doing my best to just give the best practice. Once you're doing it every day for a few months, it, it's, it's not fun anymore. It, it really isn't. And I don't know if I've ever said this before, but I actually, Danielle Collins, she saw me hitting with Sharapova and that was kind of how she uh, became aware of who I was. She had a coach at the time. Um, he couldn't go to uh, two tournaments in Japan with her. So Danielle asked me if I, if I could go. IMG were against me hit, uh, going and hitting with Danielle because Danielle wasn't assigned IMG athlete. She was from the area, so they allowed her to use the facilities. But I was, I was, I was at IMG to hit with IMG signed athletes. So when I told IMG that I was going to go with Danielle to these two tournaments, that was basically my hitting at IMG was done then. But to me, I was okay with that because if I'm honest, in my head, I didn't see how this was going to go anywhere. All these yep. players that I hit with, they enjoyed hitting with me because although they didn't say it to me, they wouldn't keep coming back to me if they didn't think it was was worth it. Um, but I knew that it was never going to turn into uh, some job because at the end of the day, if you're not uh, Sharapova, Serena Williams, or maybe Naomi Osaka, they don't travel with hitting partners and coaches. It's yep. just it's not how it is. Uh, so I, I went back to the UK and I, I was done again with the racket. Um, so I was then... Uh, looking at how I could do uh, law school in the UK or I was looking at trying to get a, a job in advertising to then be able to pay for the law school and I was looking at so many different options and there was like two, two months passed and Danielle uh, Collins she she called me on FaceTime uh, crying because she's just broken up with her coach and she wanted someone to take 
uh, to, to travel with her for the 20, maybe 2017 season. And I was torn. I was torn. I didn't know what to do. And I asked her this one question. I was like, am I going to be a hitting partner for you or a coach? And I said, because that answer determines whether I, whether I come or not. And she said, no, coach, I'll listen to you. I respect you. I want you as my coach. And that was that was how my coaching journey started. Well done on that question. <sighs> Thank you. What a great question. No, but seriously, because that is such a it's such a brave question to 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 ask. And 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 fair play to her for taking that chance on you as well. But because I guess if we almost separate the emotion of me and you having this conversation and we take facts, he is a failed tennis player who's tried a bit of hitting but is about to go to law school who has no coaching experience and he is a girl who's come out of college is pretty hot coming out of college I believe at the time was already a 250 in the world type player yeah you know so and 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 on her way to being a top 100 player why does that connect you know, so so I guess your reflection on that, why why has she taken that chance on on someone with such little experience as yourself at the time? Everything you said, I, I agree with it. I looking back, I have to ask, I have to really think why. I think the reason would be when I was doing the five, six hours a day of hitting at IMG, I would then, when Danielle wanted, do a seventh and eighth hour of practice. I would be allowed to hit with Danielle as long as I'd done my IMG commitments. And I think she really appreciated that I would be on the court for another two hours. Like I was, you know, my hands were torn to pieces. My feet were just bleeding every day. But I think she appreciated the fact that um, I would take the time to help her when I didn't need to. And I was doing it for free at the time uh, just because I thought, you know, she was a nice girl. She she kept asking me and I felt bad for saying no all the time. So I was just like, OK, um, let, let's do it. And honestly, my hits with Danielle were, were my favorite out of all of them. I learned from all the hits with the other girls. I learned from Sharapova's just professionalism, her her just her dedication to the sport, her work ethic. But with Danielle, I learned um Danielle was more open she was willing to have me uh tell her something if she felt it wasn't right or if I felt her ball was not strong enough she wanted me to tell her I could never say that with Shara. if I said to Shara, uh, Maria your your ball is just not really doing anything to me she would probably tell me just to get off the court um but with Danielle she would ask me what drills to do even though she had her coach there they they were very open to uh, me being a part of their team and so I, I enjoyed I enjoyed those practices. And I also feel like the reason why Danielle perhaps took a risk on me was that I was always telling her, and I was never lying, I, I meant this. I was telling her that I really believed in her, that she could go on and do amazing things. I would tell her, I've hit with all these girls that are top 10, top 20 yeah. in the world, and I've hit with you. And although IMG is saying, oh, you shouldn't spend time with her because... Uh, you know, she's not going to make it. I would say, no, I really believe she is going to make it. Like yeah. you are not hitting with these girls. I'm hitting with these girls. And if you put a few right pieces together with Danielle, I was like, there's no reason why she cannot get to the top of the game. And I would tell Danielle this straight, straight to her face. And I think she, she respected that and she got confidence from it. And I remember like then 
moving on a little bit, but when I was working with Danielle and we were playing Indian Wells, we were playing against Madison Keys in the, the fourth round. And Danielle was a little bit like kind of saying to me, oh, the pace is going to be too hard. I, she hit the Madison hits the ball so big. And I was I said to her, wait a second, like I've hit with Madison and I've hit with you. And I can tell you, honestly, you hit the ball just as big as her. You don't have to worry about her power. You will beat Madison Keys. And I kept saying that to her like the whole 24 hours before the match. When she finished the match, the first thing she said to me is, you were right. The pace wasn't as fast as I thought it was going to be. And these are just little things that perhaps, I'm getting ahead of myself, but perhaps being a young coach and being relevant in just just finishing tennis myself, the fact that I felt the ball of most of these girls on tour, I know what they like, what they don't like, and, and how I can motivate my player. And that's what worked with Danielle. Such a, a lovely story that is. And it's like, yeah, it's that youthful enthusiasm and, and honesty, which again, uh, as, as people do get older, maybe they, they do lose a little bit of that. And I think, I think that comes through loud and clear. And even as you tell that story, I go, well, yeah, of course, of course you helped her. You've empathized, you've connected, you've related you know, and, and these are all skills. We haven't talked about any technical skills or tactical skills or, I guess, more tennis input. But but without a shadow of a doubt, we can all impact human beings by doing the things that you've talked about there. And and I also have to say, Tom, I think I've found that the title for this podcast, which which is Return on Investment, because... I like it. Because you have have done and, and you've talked about how you've invested time in certain areas and we don't always get that immediate return on that but I am a big believer that we do eventually always get the return on that investment you know and and I think you've described that so well so now we're talking about Danielle who I believe went from 250 into sort of top 50 in the world when you worked with her which is which is no mean feat for yourself as as a coach two questions what would you put that success down to and and secondly when you look back now at that kind of 3 years now that you've got this experience on the tour do you believe you knew much about the women's game to be able to actually help from the more tennis side at that time? It's I think it's a it's a factor of of so many different things. Uh, I remember, obviously, like we talked about, I would always try and be positive, and and you know, Kathy Rinaldi would always come up to me, the the Fed Cup captain of yeah, yeah. America, and and she would say to me. It's amazing how how Danielle seems so positive, so calm, so um, so happy, not only on the court but off the court now. And that kind of, I believe I have a very positive, calming influence. And I believe that was something that helped her off the court. On the court, the results happened very quickly, and it's not like I changed her forehand or the technique on her, on her serve, and suddenly she became. You know, I got we got to 39 with Danielle, which was two two fifty to 39 in eight months is is incredible. To me, it's incredible. Um, but I I spent so much time with Danielle, just allowing her to understand what her game style was. I felt at the time she had no idea how to play. 
She had beautiful shots. She had easy power, powerful serve, powerful forehand, unbelievable backhand. But she didn't put them together in the, the right way. It would just be, she would lose to players that I was like, how can you lose to this player? Because she's just blowing unforced errors all over the place. And so I just, and like you said, I had no coaching experience. So I was doing this all from my head, but I was creating drills and I spent, I probably only did 10 to 15 drills and we just did the same drills over and over and over and over and over again, just all the time. Maybe she got bored of doing them, but I was like, I would explain to her, we're doing this drill because if you do this shot, you're going to get this ball and this is the shot that you love. And we would just do it again and again. And we repeated it, repeated it to the point where I honestly felt like Danielle knew exactly how she had to play. She knew when she had to stay cross court. She knew when she was bullying her opponent off the baseline, pushing them back, that she opened up the court to then take the chance. Um, she wasn't going for stupid uh, down the line on the run shots anymore. She was, you know, being smart, playing through the middle. All of these things, as, as, as well with serve, we did so much on knowing when to go big or also when to just use a kick because Danielle has a good kick serve. Um, I just found that when she understood how she had to play, that made the biggest jump in her game because Danielle is a smart player once she put the pieces together it almost like it clicked with her and I mean we, we were like 36 wins and six losses it was it was it was a joke yeah unbelievable but uh, but again that that brings the question in my head I mean we're talking about someone who she's been through college she's got to 250 WTA before you've come along so she's she's yeah. uh, she's been with good coaches, you know. I would imagine she spent time with with a lot of good coaches. So why has it taken this young twenty two year old to to actually teach her how to bring those pieces together? You know, is that was that just the timing of it, the the connection of the relationship? You think that kind of helped bring that whole thing together, or was she just ready to listen at that point? Um, if I'm dead honest, I don't. I'm not sure someone is ever ready to listen to, to someone they don't really know. So I feel like we've, what helped with Danielle was there was this mutual trust over a long period that just over time, she did start to listen and buy into what I was telling her. But at the same time, the best way for someone to listen to you is, is the results. And once yeah. she saw by doing this, it resulted in, this win and then when she started seeing like uh having her first wta win on and then that started seeing some of the prize money things she she started to be like hmm, maybe i i will uh, listen to this as for why coaches in the past haven't been able to do that i really don't know um i think the fact that i was um hitting with her uh playing with her all the time like we i would play every session uh, with danielle there was no one else so i knew exactly um, how her ball was feeling, what she was doing that was hurting me. I would also be able to tell um, if one day, for whatever reason, her ball just isn't doing anything today. And then we'd have to be like, hey, what's going on? Your ball is just, in a way, it's, it's, it's doing nothing at the moment. I, I, I can't say these are the reasons why it worked and why she listened to me. It's a tough question. I, I, like you said, I don't know. I just know that we had a really good connection. She trusted me. She bought into what I said to her and it worked. 
Sim simplicity, simplicity. It's, it's brilliant. I absolutely, I absolutely yeah. love it, you know, and it's, it must've been a real um, whirlwind time for you as well, you know, wondering what you're going to do. And now all of a sudden you're sat in a box in, in some of the biggest, the biggest matches that tennis can bring. Yeah, it, it was a, a crazy eight months. It really was. It, it went so quickly, but at the same time, I, I went through so much from, you know, Beating Venus Williams in the quarterfinal of Miami Open that was that was huge. Um, just we had so many uh, good results, but Danielle and I would joke at the time that we felt like it was us two against the world because no players would practice with us. They didn't know who Danielle was. When I went up to a coach, and I'm some 22 year old, in a way wannabe coach, yeah. and I'm going to the to some player who's 50 in the world. Hey, would you like to play a practice set with Danielle? No. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I remember one time we, we, we were playing uh, in Madrid Open and Danielle, she played two great matches. I remember she beat Alison Risk to qualify. We were warming up before the match and it was four on a court. And I won't name the player and her coach that we were, we were on the court with. But I said to the coach, I literally went up and I was like, hey, um, I'm more than happy to warm Danielle up. Don't you think it makes sense that if Danielle hits with your player... They get the full court. No, we don't want to warm up with you. Okay. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. So I warmed up Danielle, but we were prepared for it. I think, like I said earlier on in the pod, like tennis can be a cutthroat. It's a tough industry and it, it, you know, you just have to get on with it. And, and it did feel like us two against the world, but the more Danielle started to win and beat these big name players, people did start to kind of, I wouldn't say respect us, but they started to notice us more. Yeah. But it was always, um, I remember there'll be a few times when sometimes as a, a coach, you don't always get to hit with your player because for whatever, whatever reason, it's courts or tournaments will say like players have to hit with players. And Danielle would be forced to hit with some other girls. And you could tell these girls were just so pissed that they were having to, to play with Danielle. And it's not anything to do with Danielle or myself. It was just, I don't know, you, I think sometimes they get a bit, big for their boots and they feel like oh I'm I'm not playing with you you're you're yeah. 120 in the world um but no it was a like you said a whirlwind experience it went so quickly but it was also I learned so much from it it's it, again just even hearing you say that tennis is it's such a bizarre sport it's an amazing sport but there's one of my big pet peeves is that that people put their self-worth on a number <laughs> And it's like, whatever, you know what I mean? You're number one in the world, you're number 120 in the world, you're 140 in the world, you're 500 in the world. All that does is tell us what they're like as a tennis player. <laughs> but as a yeah. as a human being, as a person, as the, as the bigger picture, it doesn't tell us anything. Yet they, when we go, and, and it's the same thing when we go back into juniors, you know, the, the number one, two, three, and four in whatever nation it is or whatever county it is, they walk around as if they own, own the place, yeah. you know, and almost like I can't, I can't talk to them. And it, and it does cause a lot of issues because it then spreads to the parents. The parents feel yeah. they've got more self-worth if they're, if they're working on, or if their child is ranked a certain ranking. You then get to a certain age where you just realize it's all a load of bullshit. It's just, it doesn't matter. A person is a person. Treat them 
as they are for what person they are and 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 forget about all of those numbers. But I don't think many tennis players get to that point until they stop playing. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And I, I think sometimes it happens, though. I don't think anyone chooses to be this way. I think it just happens. I, I mean, perhaps when I was at IMG as a student, and like I told you, that 26-match win streak I was on, I was probably getting a bit a bit too uh, you know, big for myself uh, during that time. Um, but it is important to, to, I don't know, just to keep reminding yourself, you know, just stay humble, keep working. And, you know, I guess that's all you can say. So why did it end? Eight months whirlwind, 250 to 39. It seems like the wrong time for a relationship like that to end. Yeah, I think the biggest problem was the success happened too quickly, if I'm honest. Um, when, when when we started, we were playing Futures, we were playing uh, Challengers, and Dan- Danielle was, you know, she was too good for this level. So every week we were making semis, finals, semis, and, you know, then, then we jumped up to the WTA 125K, the first one we played in Newport Beach, we won the tournament. And this is all great, but then the moment you start getting into WTA, our first WTA, Indian Wells, uh, we make, I think it's called the final then we played Miami Open we made this the semi-final and Danielle's just starting to feel like doesn't matter what tournament she plays she needs to be winning that doesn't happen in tennis you don't just keep winning when then we started going to some tournaments in Europe um, we played Madrid we qualified won a match and lost then in Rome we qualified won a match and lost but to Danielle it was two second round losses mm-hmm. but she doesn't realize that she'd beat Camilla Georgi, Serana Kostea, Alison Risk, Joanna Larson, like top players yeah. that she would be playing in the, uh, she wouldn't even play these players in the ITF tournaments. And I think just to her, she felt like her progress was, was slowing down. Yeah. That in, I, I guess she just wasn't used to being at this top level where Unless your name is Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, you don't win every week. You don't Absolutely. keep making the finals, uh, and I think that was the the biggest the biggest reason. We never we never fell out when we were working together. We had a great relationship. Now we actually don't talk, but that's a a, a, a separate thing. But um, but when we were together, um, it it was great. You know, the, I think the biggest problem and the reason why we don't talk was just that first tournament after she fired me and I worked with Maria Maria played Danielle and Maria won and that, that from then on we haven't we haven't even acknowledged each other really yeah and it's it sucks but it's the way it is and and how quickly did then Maria come knocking um it was 24 hours I, I was I was so surprised um I sent a, an Instagram post I was in Florida just just thanking Danielle for the, uh, the the time we had together because we really did have a, a great a great period of like nine months together. I enjoyed it. We had so much success. I was extremely surprised to lose my job in the position that we were in. Like, I don't think anyone would expect to go from 250 to 39 in the world and then lose their job. But after this post, I had four players within 24 hours uh, reach out to me. One was around... Um, 200 WTA one was just outside top 100 but I knew she was going to break top 100 so I was very interested in that job uh, one was with a, a British junior girl 
and then the last one was with Maria and I was just like okay Maria is around 50 60 in the world I, I believe she could she could be you know a really interesting project and what what also was encouraging with the Maria was at the time her coach was Thomas Johansson yep. and my title was they said was going to be assistant coach to Thomas Johansson which I, I guess assistant coach can also in a way be seen as you know glorified sparring partner again but credit to both Maria and Thomas Johansson they did treat me like an assistant coach although Oh, I was the one doing all the hitting. I was involved in all the practices and, you know, brainstorming and how to make a better tactics. Like I was never felt like I was just there. Um, we, we would communicate as a team and, and, you know, I have a great relationship with Thomas Johansson. He's, I speak to him almost every day, even now. Amazing. So how does that work? I guess for the listeners, they reach out, is it Maria's Maria reaching out to you? Is it her agent reaching out to you? Her and- agent her agent and then how are you how are you negotiating are you negotiating with the agent or do you have an agent that negotiates with the agent no I know some coaches do have agents but I I'm nowhere near that level yet but the way the actual way it worked was Maria's agent uh, Lawrence Frankopan has an assistant Joseph Cohen but now actually at the time he was an assistant now he's actually also an agent himself and um, he saw my post he reached out to me saying, would I be interested in working with Maria Sakari? Maria Sakari. <laughs> I have to say it the Greek way now, Sakari. Um, and then Lawrence then called me and asked me if I was interested. I said, I, definitely. Thomas Johansson then called me. So in the space of like a few minutes, I'm like, my phone's ringing Thomas Johansson. I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, the negotiation, honestly, there was very little to negotiate. I just... Um, I, I wanted the job and I, I took it and I thought that it doesn't matter uh, what money I get or or anything because it's another opportunity to prove myself and I, I was never doing it for the money at the time it was just I, I believed I could take Maria to a higher level I also really wanted to learn from Thomas Johansson yeah. because like you said I'm a young coach still am a young coach and I respect that I don't know everything by all means and I I want to learn I'm always watching other players practices and coaches that I think are good coaches and trying to learn from them I listen to every on-court coaching from every match just because back when they had on-court coaching because I want to see how players and coaches communicate before the coach says their answer I think what would I say so I'm always trying trying to learn and I just felt like the the chance to have Thomas Johansson was just invaluable it was just you couldn't put a price on that how was the on-court coaching as a coach I only experienced it a couple of times and I'll tell my yeah. stories after but you've obviously done it lots what's what, what's your take on that how did you find it uh with Danielle that <laughs> Danielle we wouldn't really say anything uh she would just kind of just be kind of drinking her water, just listening. And then you could tell like she was too angry to even focus. So you'd, she'd say a few things and, and then, and then, then it would go off. Uh, with Maria, it was, it was different because Maria's quite open uh, during a match. Like if she's not feeling something, she'll say it. I, I, players, I think are aware that there's mics and, and, you know, some players, I guess, are, are too scared to open up. But if Maria's like not feeling her forehand, she will be like live on TV. I'm not feeling my forehand. What do I do? Help me. Um, yeah. The first time I did the on-court coaching with Maria, we were in San Jose. And 
I've only been working with Maria for like two weeks. So you never, that first time, it's always a little bit, you're, you're nervous. Mm. I don't know if I should be talking tactics or whatever. And I think in the end, I, I spent most of the time just telling her to calm down, to breathe, mm. um, to just, you know, keep, she was playing Venus Williams. And I was just like, you're making far too many unforced errors. Let's just keep the ball back in the court and let's build ourselves back into the match. It was something so simple. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just, I guess, the calming influence helped her and she did win that match. Yeah. But I'd love to hear your story on, on your on-court coaching. Yeah, it was, again, I mean, the couple of times I had it, it was it was a player that I was working with in, in a couple of WTA events. And, and I got, the one time I got called on after a six-love set, which is and never six love win loss. Oh, loss. Okay. I was like, okay. So the, the six love loss, which, you know, as you can imagine, there was some pretty high emotion, you know, coming on the, on the court. And we're talking, it was like a six love in about 14 minutes. It was a quick, it was a oh, quick geez. set. You know, it was like, I've never seen so many unforced errors in my life. And it was like, <laughs> right, where, where do I start here? And, and the, the other time that I got called on, it was actually the girl I was working with was was probably about three hundred at the time. So she was she was actually a wild card into into an event, WTA event, and she was playing Donna Vekic. And I really wanted to get on the court to help her in the first set, and I was, but she'd never. She I guess that was one thing that hit me as well that the challenges having the being able to challenge, being able to call your coach, it just it's a completely different environment to what they're used to playing in 25Ks or however it might be. And I was trying to get her eye contact and I couldn't get her eye contact. And I thought, well, maybe she'll call me at the end of the set. I had a couple of things I really wanted to say from a, from a tactical point of view. And then she was three to up in the second set and she'd actually made a little adjustment and was playing really well, had the momentum, and Vekic called on her coach and the girl I was working with, I could see she almost went bitch. I'm going to get my, co- <laughs> I'm going to get, I'm going to get my coach on as well. So she called, yeah. so she, so she called me on. And if I'm honest, I didn't really want to say too much because she had the momentum. I, she kind of just needed to keep going in her own space. And she turned to me and she said, my forehand shit. And I was like, you're three, two up, you know, what you, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, you've like, you've made this adjustment. You've got the momentum of the match, you know, and, and uh, whatever I'd kind of said back, it was just then very clear. And then it got to four all and she made four unforced errors on a forehand. She'd completely, and it's almost like if she hadn't called me on, I'm not convinced she would have even, had had that yeah. conversation around and it it was it was a nice experience to have but it, it seemed to it seems to me like it, it's a nice experience for the listener and for the watcher I think it's very good in terms of entertainment and I think it's lovely to yeah. hear hear those little conversations but I, I'm not convinced from a pure performance side it's great for the coach or for the player yeah, uh, it's so tough. I I had a good kind of conversation with Sasha Bayan about this, and yeah. I think he was leaning more towards not having the on-court coaching or that not coaching is not great for the player. I do lean towards, I do think it helps if it's done in a good way. I'm not saying other yes. people do it in a bad way. I I just feel that there are there are times that if if you communicate the message in a way that your player 
can take it, you can turn matches. Yes, um, I agree. That a lot of the time, I've had conversations with Maria where it's just getting her to calm down, just calming her down and just allowing her to vent a little bit gets it out. That has helped her. Um, sometimes she's been extremely nervous and I've been able to just kind of remind her a few key things. I, 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 it sounds crazy and I don't know if this is just me, but I, I believe my experience have also helped players like Maria in that sometimes when you're playing, you can be up 3-2 and have absolutely no idea what you did to get up 3-2. Yeah. I found this. And sometimes just having a coach who's seeing the the, the big picture, because what the people see on TV, what the coach sees from the side of the court is very different to what the yeah. player is, is, is yeah. feeling. And so I feel sometimes just being able to remind a player on what they have to do or what they're doing well it it does it does make a big difference. Yeah. And and I think everything there that you've talked about. Or pretty much everything you've talked about is is emotional coaching, and I think yeah. I, I I do think that that's where almost the major impact is. You know, obviously, if there's a pattern, if there's there's something from a from a tactical standpoint that you see unfolding to make some form of adjustment without a question, and I, I think where my thoughts probably go, Tom, to it is, I actually think people should be able to speak and coach from the side of the court. Because if we talk about the on-court coaching, it's almost, and, and you said it there, sometimes the players, especially if there's microphones on, it's not a very natural environment. You know, it feels almost yeah. like, and, and now for the entertainment, you know, the 60-second yeah. entertainment. No, it, it's, it's, it's true. Whereas when it's happening naturally from the side of the court, and I would say I've been involved and seen many matches turn on really good, positive, emotional coaching happening from the side of the yeah. court, you know, yeah. just getting them we to recognize. We can actually do that, do that now. In the WTA, like, you know, we can actually coach uh, from the side. We can speak as much as we want, only when the player is on our side of the court. Um, they said when the player is on the far side of the court, we can do hand signals or whatever. But when they're on, on my side, I can, if I wanted to, I could speak to Maria between every point. Yeah, and how have you found? And that? I think that's massive. Massive is that started? I, I think it's an. Yeah, that started actually in the first tournament was in Doha last year. Obviously, we yeah. had a long break with coronavirus, but yeah. like in Cincinnati, Ostrava, all the tournaments I played last year with Maria, I was talking to her all the time. Obviously, okay. in the slams, I cannot talk to her. So it, it's in, it's a fine margin of not trying to do everything for the player. But also, if, if, I, if I believe I can say something in Cincinnati last year that helps Maria beat Serena Williams, I'm going to say it. 100%. I'm not going to be like, ah, oh, we lost the match, but I wanted you to learn this lesson. No, if we can win, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure we win. Yeah. Um, and then it's important, I think, from the coach to uh, reflect on what was said to help the player learn so that when they're in a slam and they can't speak to the coach, little little things that can help them when they're by themselves. Yeah. And there's such a skill to it as well, you know, because it's not just what's said, but it's, it's the tone in how it said it. It's the, it's the way that it's delivered. And that's, that is a skill. And if we look at any sport, let's be honest, I don't think there's another sport out there where the player can't have any communication with the coach, you know, and you've, you've talked a lot today about we, 
we, and I like that. I, I yeah. don't like it when I hear parents say it about their young kids, you know, we're playing an under 14 yeah. tournament. I don't like that, but I've liked the, that. That's really shown me how, how collective you are working as a team. And, and, and ultimately you're dedicating your life to an individual, <laughs> you know, your, yeah, your life's true. pretty much on hold. You know, good luck having a family yeah. over the next few years when you when you're traveling. You know, giving giving 40, 45 weeks a year to whether it's Maria or whoever it is. So 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 the the ability to then work as a team during a match is is, in my opinion, one of one of the big skills and major skills of the sport. So I I I'm pleased it's happening on the women's tour. I'd love to see it happen across the board. I think we'd see more people messing up doing it than having success doing it. And I think then we'd find out that this is a, this is a real skill to be able to do it. Uh, absolutely. It's definitely not easy on court coaching. I'd say it's a lot easier when you're playing on some outside court with no microphone, because then you can just speak how you yeah. would normally do on the practice court. But, you know, when you're, you're walking onto um, the stadium at Indian Wells and back when there was a packed crowd and a microphone, you're like, I have to be so careful with what I say, but I also have to make sure that I help Maria win this match. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think it brings great entertainment. And for me, like I said before, I learn from, from it. I yeah. I listen to other coaches that I like. And sometimes I think, wow, this coach, like I think Darren Cahill is fantastic at yeah. it. I, I, yeah. I, I love listening to him and I've, I've learned a lot from him. So I think it, it, it can be a very good tool. And talking about advancements of the game, one of the big advancements that I see in the game is, and we talk about this on every podcast or pretty much every podcast, is is the accessibility of data, the accessibility yeah. object of objective measures into into the game. You know the analytics. Where do you sit on that as a coach? Um, I actually use a, a data analyst. Um, I pay for it out of my own pocket because I believe it can give me an edge. It's it's very difficult because the information I get on certain players it's sometimes too much. I don't. I, the The challenge for me is I get this information and obviously I know all these players. Like I've seen them play four or five times each minimum. So if you ask me any player, like I know what Maria has to do, but just I use the analyst as well, just just to. It's almost like my insurance. I think you should play this way. What does the data say? And yeah. if there's a what I believe and what the data says, I'm actually going to go with what I believe because at the end of the day, if I'm going to lose, I want it to be because of me. I don't want to be trusting some computer. The challenge, though, that I feel is you get all this information and players want it simple. Not all players. I know some players love to have, you know, for example, Murray. I've heard Murray and I don't know this i could be wrong but i believe he loves to have so much data um, and information on on everything whereas maria for example two three important things and for me it's picking what are the two three most important things yeah but i do think data is important so why do you why do you pay for it and not maria i told maria that um i want her to feel that and I know most players pay for it themselves, but I want her to feel that I'm investing in her, that I'm doing it because I believe in her, and I, I really believe there's no reason why Maria cannot be number one in the world. And I, I I'll say it to anyone, I believe she can. I agree. Um, and so, for me, it's just 
showing her that I believe in you. I'm putting this investment out of my own pocket because this is something I believe might help us get to the goal that we want. Uh, for me, it's 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 not a problem. I, I just want her to know that she's not alone, that we're in this together and I'm putting as much commitment to it as, as she is. And could you share one or two things that you consistently look for in the data? Um, I would say maybe it's different on the men's side. I don't know. Uh, I'm looking a lot at serving patterns. For me, that's something that I'm always looking for. Returning patterns, for example, I believe a lot in the first four shots. So I want to know how I can help prepare Maria the first four shots of, of points to put herself in the position she likes. It's very easy to look at a play and be like, backhand is better, forehand is better. You can attack the second serve. These are basic things in tennis. But I like to see percentage-wise, if we go serve to the forehand, first ball back to the forehand, how are we going to be looking in that sort of point? Um, same with the return. If we can try and get most returns on the backhand, play the first shot to the forehand. It it sounds simple, but if you can set up the point the right way, I found that it it, it, it helps. And I just I just have one question on Maria before I've got then one more question for you, Tom. She, and by the way, I picked her to win the US Open on one of my podcasts. And he almost uh, had it. Yeah, I, I really felt it. I looked at the draw and I thought this can really open for her here, you know. And yeah. and 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 I think it's a matter of time. I really do. She she excites me, you know. Watching, I think she's one of the the most, if not the most, exciting female player on the tour right now. And what an incredible, incredible athlete she is. What what percentage of that is natural compared to what she's worked on and continues to work on? Oh, that's tough. I don't think it's possible to even put a percentage on it. It's it's. There's no doubt Maria is a extremely gifted athlete. She. Yeah. It doesn't matter what sport. I remember a year ago I gave her a. Um, we were in Cincinnati. We went to Top Golf, and she's never swung a golf club in her life and put the ball down. Doesn't even know how to swing. Has never really seen. She can hit it. She's just a natural athlete. But with that in mind. She puts hours and hours and hours mm. into it. Like she eats the cleanest that I've seen out of any mm. player. She is so dedicated. She even if she doesn't want to go, she will put the work in. And there's, you know, when you when you look at her and you see her her physical, like stature and like her appearance, this doesn't just genetics. No, she 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 has built this for many many years also with her fitness coach, who's fantastic. Um, it's a combination. <laughs> I guess you can say 50-50 then. <laughs> 50% natural, 50% just work. And and now that she's had 14 days in a hotel room, how much of a disadvantage is that for her chances in Australia? This is all new for everybody. I believe there's only a few players, um, the couple players in US Open, and a few Australians and maybe a couple of players like Annie Samova, who last week had to quarantine in Abu Dhabi, but unfortunately cannot play here. Nobody knows exactly what they're going to be like after 14 days. I feel really sorry for the men because if it was best of five sets, my feeling is almost impossible. I know Pospisil is one of the guys and maybe I'm wrong, but if Pospisil draws like, like Diego Schwartzman in the first round, like, 
that's tough. 14 days in the room, that's tough. I'm going to see tomorrow when we practice for the first time how Maria is. I'm very, I want to be very careful with how the shoulder is because if you just jump in and start serving a lot, injuries can happen easily. I know Maria is an athlete. She's competitive. She wants to play the warm-up tournament before, but I'm going to have to just monitor because we have nine days until Australian Open starts. Maria's been working two, three sessions a day in her room, so physically she'll be perhaps in, in better condition. But then there's factors just like the heat. If you go and play for two, three hours on the tennis court, elbow, shoulder, wrist, yeah. they're all going to be hurting. So I definitely would say it's not ideal preparation yeah. by all means. Um, but I do believe we can have a successful tournament. And I, I've told Maria this, that I believe... I can't remember the exact number. I think there's 27 WTA players that are in hard quarantine, haven't been able to leave the room. And I said to Maria, I promise you, a few of those those girls are going to go second week of Australian Open. So it, it's definitely not ideal, but there'll be some that can can go deep. Maybe maybe even one of these 27 girls will win the tournament. Who knows? With your positive energy, Tom, that's going to really help her because that as much as anything, I think there's the physical aspect, but there's, there's also the mental aspect. And, and I think, you know, I, I heard, a, I heard a story a few years ago about Andy Roddick again, how true it is. I, I don't know, but it, it, it sounds good. So I'm going to tell it anyway. And he'd, he'd been out for a few months injury it with injury. And he'd actually spent a lot of time working on kind of creative visualization, you know, imagining himself playing points, playing tournaments. And he, and he actually came back and he won his first ATP tournament when he, when he came back and he very much put that down to the fact that he had his mind prepared, you know? And I think sometimes as tennis players, we get a little bit obsessed with how we feel, feel the ball if we don't feel the ball then i can't play i can't play it doesn't feel right it doesn't feel right whereas actually sometimes that's just a figure of our imagination you know and if we are able to have that real strength of mind and i think it's going to bring through that as a as a real test for a lot of these players and i'm with you i'm sure there's going to be somebody that's managed to get their mind in the right place and somebody whose bodies then matches that, who, why not go and win the tournament? What a great story that would be. It, it would be. So my, so my last question, what's, what's the future for Tom Hill? Are you going to be an on the road coach now that you've got, now that you're on the road and you're doing what you're doing on the tour? Is this, is this it for you? Is this the next 50 years? <laughs> I I really 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 enjoy this job and um, I know as you know as well it's a big sacrifice it's lonely you're on the road a lot so kind of you do have no social life but for me I couldn't imagine myself doing any other job um, I love teaming up um, with a player and, and, and their team and, and kind of developing a plan and, and trying to to make them be the best that they can be. Nobody knows what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to be with Maria for a month or the next five years or the whole of her career. I don't know. I, I love working with her, um, but no, nobody knows. And if, if for whatever reason Maria and I stopped working, I also don't know if another player would hire me. So it's impossible to say, but if I can stay in this business, this industry, I will. I, I do really enjoy it. 
And Tom, if that does happen and you're struggling for a player, which I have no, there's no way that you will, just go home, consider going to law school, start looking up law school <laughs> options again, and then somebody will come in because that, that seems to be your Maybe pattern. Maybe that's the secret. <laughs> Maybe that's the key. Or go to a bar. <laughs> <laughs> or go to the bar, exactly. Both of those options will work. Uh, Tom, you've been brilliant. I've, I've absolutely loved our chat. I really, really enjoyed getting to know you. And, and, it, and it's, it's really clear to me why you are having the success that you're having as a coach and how you're impacting these girls in, in such a positive way. And I, I wish you and Maria all the best for the, the Australian swing and, and also for the rest of 2021. She is a, my favorite female tennis player out there. You know, she really is, you know, oh, I love I, <laughs> you know, and, and I've had, you know, I've, I've worked with a couple of Greek girls, you know, who she, who she plays on the Fed yeah. cup team with, you know, so I've always had that kind of close alliance to, to that as well. But I think she's extremely exciting. You're doing a brilliant job and yeah, I can't wait to turn my TV on, whether it's in Australia, whether it's far down the line and see you both celebrating a grand slam win, but good luck with it. But we now have our quick fire round to finish. So are you ready? No, but thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Player or coach? Oh, um, player. On court coaching or not? On court coaching. In the stand coaching or not? In, in the stand as well. Favourite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. Who's going to win the men's 2021 Australian Open? Stefanos Tsitsipas. Oh, sticking to your local country, eh? That'll be... I'm not even going to ask about the women's, but we'll just say we're going to have a couple of Greek winners. Yeah, exactly. Should there, should there be an injury timeout or not? Should it be allowed? Um... Yeah, I have no problem with it. Do players use it strategically? Absolutely. Would you coach a player to use it strategically? I would not coach it, but if a player I was working with used it strategically, then I would be okay with it. What's one rule change that you would have in tennis if you could? Oh, that's impossible for quick fire. <laughs> the one thing that I would love to see, one thing I would love to see, and I know this will never happen, but just out of curiosity, I would love for one slam to one time play best of five sets for the women. I would be so curious that uh, that would never happen. You would say that when you're coaching the physical specimen that is Maria. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's, let's do it at Roland Garros, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And who who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Ooh, I'm just going to say Thomas Johansson. Has he been on? He hasn't, but so, so you know, as part of the contract of signing up to this podcast, you are now responsible to get that next guest. I can do my best. <laughs> 
Tom, you've been brilliant. Go and have that COVID test. Let's hope it comes yeah, back. Fine. Let's hope it comes back negative. I don't know how it wouldn't. Let's but... hope so. <laughs> I mean, I've had like 12, 12 negatives in a row. So just give me, give me one more. <laughs> and enjoy that fresh air tomorrow. No, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed uh, our chat and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks, Tom. A big thank you to Tom for coming on the show. It's when when we do these podcasts, I guess they are a little bit time sensitive at times. So so you know, we did record this one a few days ago while he was in quarantine in Melbourne. And actually, as it happens, as it's released today, unfortunately, Maria Sakari has lost in the first round of the Australian Open. Uh, I'm sure that's just going to be a blip in what is going to be an amazing career for Maria. And, and I'm also convinced that Tom is going to play a big role with that. And yeah, as we've been doing on these podcasts, you know, what are the learnings? What do we take? And, you know, we want to hear from you guys. You know, there's been many of you reaching out as always, and we love to get the messages. I'm going to read a couple of the messages shortly, but I guess just to share my learnings, the, the word that he used a lot was we, 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 we. And I'm not a fan of that when it comes to parents with players because I think the players have to have their own independent, you know, tennis is their their thing. You know, it's like parents don't want to necessarily take their children to a, to a dinner party. You know, the dinner party is the parents' thing and the tennis is very much the, the kids' thing. But when it gets to professional tennis, more and more it is a team. And I think these players truly do. We hear Ash Barty talking about it all the time. You know, we have won this Grand Slam and we have done this. And and that came through loud and clear. And just take a minute to think about it. You know, there, there's Tom. He's probably spending 45, 46, 47 weeks with Maria on the road. He's basically giving his life up for another player for another person, you know, and it really is quite a special thing for, for people to do. And the second thing on that, and the point that I want to make on that is how much belief he very clearly gives his players. You know, he didn't skip a beat when he said, I believe Maria can be world number one. And he truly does believe that. And Maria knows that he believes that. And that's kind of filters through, not just from words, but also from his actions on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's really clear to see that he has given that to Danielle Collins. And then he's also given that to Maria Sakari. And sometimes when we go with the older, more experienced coach, you know, they've done it. They've been there. But are they willing to have those conversations, put in the long, hard hours, you know, and, and I'm not sure they always are, you know, and in, in some cases, absolutely. But I think the belief that he has given to his players and then he's learning all the time, he's going to continue to be working at the very top of the game. Um, he talked about taking the opportunities, you know, and I, I do think people think that there's an easy route into the game, that you just hit a few balls with players and all of a sudden you get a job. It's not quite as simple as that. Um, you, you have to put the work in. You know, I thought he had a very interesting take on being a hitting partner. You know, it sounded like hell, to be honest. Uh, but he, he, he kept doing it and he, he obviously had the personality to build the right relationships. And I think probably because he wasn't desperate for a job as well, that then led to him 
getting the right opportunity at the right time and he was he was able to take it with both hands so take it take my hat off to him for that and as someone who likes an odd beer now and then uh, my message that I took away is make sure you are, are at the bar every now and then and make sure it's the right bar at the right time because you never quite know what opportunity might come. So really, really great chat. Love talking to Tom and someone who I, I really do hope that our paths cross more and more. Yeah, moving into you guys, the listeners. If you are still listening at the end of these podcasts, then a big thank you. You're our loyal listeners every podcast I have to give that little plea for a like for a rating a review it takes 30 seconds and it really does help us as a podcast to get to get it out there uh, we are looking to to rebrand our podcast art so look out for that on social media you know we really want your opinion on where you think we should go and all of these things are just to help make us more attractive for people to find because we're a big believer in the content that's coming out there uh, i want to share a message here I received from Philippe Azar. Um, a little bit, a little bit embarrassing because he speaks so so highly of the podcast. But I think it's important that we also do discuss this. Um, he says I have to congratulate you on the quality of the guests. Such a good variety of tennis experts with interesting perspectives. But then he also goes on to say, "Well done on the quality of the questions." You know, I love how you listen to your guests and asked. Ask questions based on what they said rather than ticking off a list of pre-planned questions. It's not easy to lead a podcast like this, but you're doing it really well and it makes for much more interesting conversation rather than a question and answer. And that that's for me personally who I don't proclaim to be an expert doing this. I'm a tennis coach. I've got a tennis academy, but I've certainly grown to love this podcast world more and more. I really have. And to get a message like that because that is the way that we try to do it we have very loose structures to our chats and we want it to be an authentic organic chat that we have just around the fireplace with a glass of wine a cup of coffee and it's lovely to hear that so thank you Philippe uh, I have to share another one that we got on Facebook um, sorry, Joe Dixon, but my new favourite is David Walsh. What a great podcast. What a, what a great raconteur. And more importantly, what values. A top listen. And that comes from my dad. <laughs> so there is more people than just my dad listening to the podcast. But I know that he was really excited to have David Walsh on the show, as were we. You know, he didn't disappoint and I know that I know that my dad was was David's biggest fan of the podcast, and lots of people have reached out on that one, as they have on the Australian Open preview. We'll be getting the guys back as well to review what happens at the end. There's already many things happen happening in the first couple of days. Dan Evans is out against Cameron Norrie earlier today, and the hard quarantiners seem to be struggling. You know, there's a lot of a lot of the seeds are starting to fall. So I'm sure at the end of the Aussie Open, we'll get our experts on and we'll unpack that for you as well. But till the next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>